and long gone are the days when a paperback meant a penguin. Pure and simple. Let alone when a paperback publisher could confidently market a product with no image at all on the cover, just the title and the author's name, emphatically lettered. Beautiful. Penelope Lively. Dancing Fish and Ammonites. A memoir. Welcome to the Revisionist History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and over the past several Tuesdays, we've been doing book reviews of books about history. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different while still staying with that literary theme. We're going to look at the history of a publishing company that you all know. Let's get started. Today's episode is going to sound like I've suddenly been hired by Penguin Random House's marketing department. This is definitely not the case, though if they were to come knocking, I'd listen, get my foot in the door, and then assemble an awesome library smuggling out one book a day, just like Johnny Cash assembled that car in the song One Piece at a Time. Give it a listen if you've never heard it. But I digress. No, I'm not a Penguin employee, but I am a huge Penguin fan, and in this episode, I'll give you some reasons why you should be too, assuming that you're not already. First, a little history of Penguin. In 1934, Alan Lane, the managing editor of the English publisher The Bodley Head, a cool name in its own right, was returning to London after visiting with Agatha Christie, one of his authors. While looking for something to read at the bookstalls of the Exeter station, he was struck by the fact that nothing was available but pulp novels of poor quality. It was while waiting on his train that he first envisioned paperback editions of quality literature cheap enough to be sold from a vending machine. Then, as now, hardcovers were out of the price range of most working class readers. Though the vending machine concept never really gained traction, In 1935, Penguin Publishing was born, with their now-famous covers of orange, blue, green, white, or black, the color denoting the genre, such as orange for fiction, with no pictures, just the title, author, and Penguin logo. The books were priced at six pence, the same as a pack of cigarettes, and one-fifteenth the price of a hardcover at the time. He could sell them cheaply, because the large print runs were more profitable. And against all odds, within six months of introducing the first ten titles, one million penguins had been sold. Just for the record, this was the first ten titles. The Mysterious Affair at Styles by Agatha Christie. Madame Claire by Susan Ertz. Poet's Pub by Eric Linklater. Carnival by Compton McKenzie. Ariel by Andre Morois. 25 by Beverly Nichols. Gone to Earth 
by Mary Webb. William by E.H. Young. The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club by Dorothy Sayers. And A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. You see, even Penguin owes its success to Papa. I also think it's notable that of the first ten titles, half were by female authors. Penguin was way ahead of its time. From there, sales skyrocketed, with more titles added every year, and new imprints as well, such as Puffin Books for children's literature. Fast forward to 2013, Penguin merged with Random House, but they've not lost the ability to put out amazing books, as we'll see in just a moment. But for you collectors out there, any of those 1930s penguins are worth a good deal today, so be on the lookout. They're easy to spot, especially the orange fiction titles. Now, let's take a look at some of the various editions that Penguin offers. There are, of course, the well-known and well-loved Penguin Classics editions. These, unlike their early counterparts, do have cover art, often beautiful cover art. There are the Penguin Drop Caps, a series of small hardcover editions, 26 in total, one for each letter of the alphabet, with the author's last name as the letter, and it starts with Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and ends with Carlos Ruiz Safan's The Shadow of the Wind. Any series that has those as its starting and ending point is going to be great. But perhaps my favorite, and one I highly recommend to all of you, is the Penguin Classics Deluxe Edition series. I realize it's a mouthful, but anyway. There are currently 112 titles in the series, with more added each year. And these have, in my opinion, some decided advantages over the standard Classics Editions. First of all, they're a little larger, and the font size is larger as well. Now this may not matter to you if you're 20 and can see a fly on a branch at 100 yards, but when you pass 40, it matters. You can read for hours with no eye strain at all. Second, they're simply the most beautiful paperbacks on the market today. The polar opposite of the plain original Penguins, and even the normal Classics editions with their subdued cover art and black-bottomed band, these covers pop. I especially love the artwork on the covers of The Master and Margarita, Crime and Punishment, Moby Dick, and On the Road. These were some of the best sellers in my bookstore, and I really do believe that Penguin has drawn a whole new generation of readers into the classics simply by giving them an eye-catching cover. Go check them out on the Penguin Random House website. You'll see what I mean. And if you want to build a personal library, you could do worse than starting with the Penguin Classics Deluxe Editions. And you won't break the bank doing it. At $16 to $20 per title, you could buy two a month simply by cutting back on those pumpkin spice lattes from Starbucks. Just a suggestion. So that's our episode for today. Have a great day, everybody. And keep on reading.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. Thanks a lot.